0: I've done hundreds of interviews with individual artists over the years. It's relatively easy. All you have to do is get this one person in a room, turn on the recording devices, and you're set. When it comes to interviewing a band, a little more tricky. You're lucky to get two members in the same place at the same time. But getting every member of a band in the same place at the same time for an interview is next to impossible. I've only managed to be so lucky a couple of times. U2, Kings of Leon, Foo Fighters, Green Day, Blink-182, and that's about it. And let me tell you something. Each of these interviews required extraordinary efforts under extraordinary circumstances. Such circumstances miraculously presented themselves with Billy Talent. All four guys were on the same table in the same studio at the same time. The purpose? To get them to tell the story of Billy Talent In their own words. And this is part two of our conversation.
1: This
2: is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross.
0: Billy Talent with Rusted for the Rain, one of the singles from their 2009 album, Billy Talent 3. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I'm back with all four guys from the band to recount their career in their own words. Part one was all deep background. And now we're ready to talk about the group's major label career, which began in the fall of 2003. You got in just under the wire. Yeah. Because this is 99, (laughs) 2000, 2001. You're absolutely correct. Just after Napster explodes. Yeah. And just as CD sales peak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was still money in the industry. That's right. Yeah. And labels were willing to invest in bands, new bands. Yeah. And take a chance on, on guys like you. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, that, that and going back to it, like so, when Gavin Brown, uh, who was an up and coming producer, and when Mike McCarty came, they saw us, and then Mike wanted to give us a publishing deal, which we didn't even know what publishing was. <laughs> and then uh, Gavin wanted to record these demos with us, so we ended up recording uh, how many songs? Six. Like, uh, right? Six songs. Six. Yeah. For me, so my up...
1: publishing. Yeah.
2: So and then once that kind of happened, then Warner Brothers was like, oh. So wait, you guys just signed? Okay, wait a second. So now they, yeah. uh, they it was like once we kind of became bona fide, then other people started really coming to us. And Warner Canada, we decided to sign this deal with Warner Canada that they had the first right of refusal at the demos. Yeah. Right? Which was a blessing and a curse. Yeah. In uh, good
1: faith to, because Jen, Because Jen of Jen. Jen. It it was all because of right? Jen.
2: So then, I, you know, cue to one night, we, uh, and Hoffman who passed away what's what Steve Hoffman Steve Hoffman. Do you remember Steve Hoffman? Yeah, great guy rest in peace Steve, but he uh, So now he was he was managing some bands and so he came to the studio the recording or our little jam space that we were at and He ended up seeing us and and hanging out and he's like do you guys mind if I call There's some a and R guys in from Atlantic, New York. Do you mind if I call them and see if they want to come down and check you guys out? We're like, okay and he literally called them and it was a cold night, 11 o'clock at night and these two guys got in their cab and came to our rehearsal space and saw us play.
1: And they were, they were here checking out some other band yeah, like yeah. the sign, but...
2: And, uh, and that's when it got super weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How? Yeah. Well, because next thing you know, Atlantic, these two guys were blown away. And we're literally smoking cigarettes and drinking beer in our little, yeah, you know, five by five. We just five played by like five. three songs yeah. in
1: front of them and then yeah. they were like, whoa, what's this? Yeah, Let's go have a drink across the street at Betty's. Yeah, we did. And uh, yeah, it it all got crazy from there.
2: So then they fly it back to New York and they tell their president about us and now Atlantic's really interested. But because we signed this Warner Canada first right of refusal thing, so now we have Warner Canada who's really interested. And then what happened is then it got super absurd because now Electra and Warner Brothers in the States now they're all interested. So we went from toiling in obscurity for eight, nine years to then all of a sudden, literally within two weeks, being flown every, back and forth to New York for every dinner. Every For a whole
1: month. The whole month <laughs> yeah. of August, yeah. we were literally getting flown to New York, yeah. the whole band, taken out for fancy dinners. Yeah. Staying at fancy um, hotels. And they'd rent like the SIR and we'd, we'd play like five songs yeah. in front of each of these labels every weekend. It was nuts. And then it became so weird. Like a good old fashioned bidding war war on us,
2: you know? And you also got to keep in mind, like we are working class, (laughs) you know? Yeah. uh, We're all 26 years old or something like that. And we had no, like this was, you can even write this. And as far as work and say, first of all, being flown, so we're staying at like the Hudson hotel and like going out to like nice restaurants. And, you know, it was, it was all, (laughs) it was an amazing time in the band. Yeah. Yeah. We felt invincible at that point. Yeah. It's cool. I bet. Yeah. yeah. As you're trying to figure out which fork to use when you sit down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's a Kobe beef? Yeah. There's a good yeah.
3: story of uh, we. Tom Wally had. Ta- he wanted to see us. He was the president of uh, Warner Brothers. I'm sure you know who Tom Wally is. And he but He didn't want to leave his beach house in New Jersey to come to the city. So they took us to New Jersey, rented an airplane hangar. We played the sh- little. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, session in front of him where he just sat down and looked at the floor and
2: and, and he, had, echoey- he had Chris Isaac at his house that day remember yeah. that yeah. Yeah, yeah
3: he had this echoey like uh, airport, airport hangar on gear that we didn't that wasn't even our gear so we like it was just a, a terrible situation anyway but he, he still wanted to sign us but he took us back to his beach house uh, for, for dinner after, but he wouldn't let us into the beach house. We only got to eat on the patio. <laughs> yeah. he, was,
1: he was having like a family
2: birthday thing yeah. or something. So a, we, a, we were nostalgic. hanging out on
1: a patio, and he's like, the beer's on tap, just help yourself. Like, that's awesome. This
2: place was amazing. Yeah. And then yeah. we had an awkward meeting with him, and then he's like, all right. And then he left and went inside, and we were just like sitting on his patio. being like, okay, yeah. so what does this mean? Yeah. Eating fried
0: chicken and drinking his yeah. beer. Yeah. So <laughs> what, was, what, was, what was the upshot of all this? What happened?
2: Well, uh, what happened? And then we kind of got to that point where we had to make a decision because like, we were like, well, we're not quite sure. Maybe if, you can find it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and then we just decided uh, through, uh, you know, uh, we also there's a big part of our success is a guy named Chris Taylor, who's a, a, a lawyer in the city. Now he's doing uh, a million other things, but uh So he uh, started working with us, and he kind of became our advisor. And so we were looking at all the offers, and we decided at the time that we were going to do a split where we were assigned, uh, I can't remember the actual percentage, but it was like 70-30 Atlantic. It 80-20. 80-20 Atlantic in the world and America and Canada, Warner Canada would still have us in Canada. And so we decided to go with Atlantic Records, uh, which was... The originally in our guys that we had seen, yeah, they that came out. They one. were from Atlantic, Tom yeah. Storms
0: and Kevin Well, that's Williams that's and a and pretty legendary record label. I mean, that's that's Led Zeppelin, and
1: that, that was, was <sighs> part of, that was part of the selling power yeah, for us. We was even was got like, to meet Ahmed Erdogan. We yeah, yeah, sat we in Ahmed, Ahmed Erdogan's runs. office. Yeah. Yeah, cool. the day we signed, and like, on I'm his looking birthday. up. I'm looking up at the wall, and there's the bow from yeah. the, like "Song Remains the Same" that Jimmy Page played on his wall. I mean, like we were just like, this is insane. Like, so it's I'm, I'm on Erdogan Like all the artists on that label, and well, that from definitely Ray instance, Charles forward. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ray oh, Charles, Ray Charles, Franklin. Yeah. Like, and you so know, what he says, "He's like, one. it's my birthday,
2: and you know what I want? Billy oh, Taylor. Billy, Billy Taylor for my birthday." <laughs> <laughs> we're like, "Holy <laughs> <laughs> sh! Uh, yeah. So yeah, and then, uh, and then yeah. we
1: signed."
0: Billy Talent and nothing to lose from their self-titled major label debut album. Well, right, let's get back to the conversation, which leads us to the finally to the first album. Yeah. So that uh, I remember hearing it for the first time, and I remember thinking that's an interesting singing style.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was. I still say that. Uh, yeah. But I it mean... was. But it was distinctive. Uh, you know, in in an era coming out of the '90s where everything was was drop D tuning and everybody was, you know, Eddie Jarls, uh, it, it was, you know, there, there was you and there was, uh, 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 rain Maida who were distinctive, uh, Canadian voices.
2: Well, and I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess I, the, the weird thing for me and in, in singing is that I, you know, I, I, the first five years of, of, of being in a band, you know, I was trying to sound like other people. You know, I was trying to sound like Eddie Vedder. I was trying to sound like Scott Weiland. I'm trying to sound like Zach to the Roche, you know, like I'm trying to do that. And then I realized I can't do that, you know? So I just kind of ended up being me. And I think the, the, the reason that, uh, you know the band stood out so much at that time is because much like we were saying, but we were coming off, you know, it was moist and trouble charger and tea party, and uh, like that was kind of what was happening in Canada at that time. Uh, I'm Mother Earth, you know, and we were just so far from that that when you when it was on the radio or when it, you know, you heard it, it was just it stood out that much more, you know, it was I, strange. I would uh, make the comparison to
0: some Johnny Lydon. Yeah, well, and I'll say thank you. Yeah, <laughs> because again, very distinctive. Yeah, and when you when a Billy Talent song came on the radio from that first album, you knew
2: immediately that it was this new band called Billy Talent. Yeah, and no one else. No, yeah, well, I think that's uh that that's been the blessing and the curse. Uh, uh, you know, our band is is. And also with Ian's guitar playing and, and just songwriting abilities too is like it just it sounds like us you know and I, I think that's something especially now that we've been doing it for a couple of years uh, <laughs> that you know it's still nice to for that to that distinction to still occur you know so that's a,
3: that's always my favorite compliment is that people can't peg the band and they just say well you guys just sound like you and you don't sound like anybody else and to me that's the the best compliment
2: I agree.
1: Let's go back and talk about your guitar playing. Uh, who who are your heroes? Not the ones you would think. <laughs> it's it's funny because like people ask me who are my favorite guitar players. I'm like Andy Summers, Mark Knopfler, a lot of guys that played clean. Um, Jimmy Page, um, not not that big. You know, at that time it, uh, the big Mesa sound was like John ja, ja, like that yeah. that drop D sound was a big popular thing. But um, I do play in drop D, but I wanted it to sound clean. And uh, Tom Morello. Uh, Kim Thale from Soundgarden, and uh, yeah, those were those would have been my influences. Because again, just like listening to Ben sing, listening to you play
0: guitar, you know that it's it's you. And again, with some of Thanks. the some of the parts, you know, with the way Aaron plays, is a hard hitter, and, and 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 John at the bottom end, it's again, it's the some of the parts just worked. And it took a long. Well, it took your ten thousand hours to.
3: His guitar playing is the most unique in the world, in my opinion. Nobody plays like that, and that that is definitely a part of the 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 sound is 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 as important as the voice.
1: I think when when the band was first starting, I I was the rhythm guitar player. I never felt comfortable playing lead, so I, was, I ended up trying to do both when i became the the sole guitar player in this band and by doing that i found like dropping to d i could play one i could play bar chords with one finger and then do a bunch of leads with the other and from doing that i just kind of discovered this new approach to playing guitar which i you know it, it's it's almost like piano playing in a way you know uh,
3: he's, he's also also self taught too and i think that uh,
1: has that a huge yeah you had no idea that you were screwing up yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, never, I never wanted to play traditionally anyways I, I was I looked at the guitar as something fun and 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 the way you know someone like Tom Morello played it it was really interesting and he got all these cool sounds out of it so I wanted to do the same a lot of what Tom Morello does is what he doesn't
0: do it's the yeah. spaces between the notes totally that that he's a, like a jazz player
1: in that sense yeah. It's what he doesn't play that makes it so cool absolutely do you use any weird tunings? Just dropped E-Standard and and that's been the that way for 23 years, like since the the band started. Let's move on through this first album. So
0: the, you get the deal with Atlantic Records uh, and what do they do with you?
2: A whole bunch of nothing. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, in Canada, you know, uh, much to your point earlier on, we were really lucky and really fortunate because, um, you know, it was at the time where radio was playing rock music. And there was multiple stations across, uh, across the country that were playing us. We also had the fortunate, uh, you know, the door kind of closing where much music was still playing videos and we're playing us, you know, in high rotation, high rotation, high rotation. And then all of a sudden in Canada, it just kind of like, we got shot out of a rocket, you know, it was, it was, it was insane, uh, that people were actually lining up to come see our shows and, uh, yeah. And that was obviously blew our minds. Another thing I think that happened around the same
0: time. And again, you were insanely lucky is that the Canadian content requirement for radio went up to 35%. There you go.
2: Yeah, so of course that helped. Yeah. So
0: suddenly there was room. Um, mm-hmm. There was more demand
2: for Canadian uh, material on the radio. Yeah. So we benefited. I, I still think to this day uh, that we benefited from that. To be able to sustain a career now, um, and in the states, uh, we released "Try Honesty" and it did quite well. And then the label had a choice to release another single, and they didn't. And that was kind of the beginning of our
1: uh, <laughs> up and down battle, yeah. battle yeah, with US, America.
2: Because yeah. Uh, yeah, we've just never had a lot of luck with labels or management in, in that regard. <laughs>
0: Below, another single from that first album. When we come back, stories of record labels and promises and deals that did not work out. And a few that did. Hang tough. This is part two of a program called Billy Talent in Their Own Words. And it's just like it sounds. All four members of the band telling us their story. And like many groups from Canada, they ran into trouble breaking into America. So at that
3: beginning with uh, when uh, Atlantic, you know, they did, obviously they... They gave us a little bit of leeway to do some of the things we wanted to do. We, we recorded the record out in Vancouver. We They were fine with us using Gavin, the small local Toronto producer, instead of pushing somebody else on us. And uh, I think they did give us some pretty good initial support. They got us you know, uh, all of our record labels uh, connected through connections through Europe and things like that. But then, like Ben said, after Try Honesty, it was just, they just pulled the shoot. Why? Why did you? lose it was money.
1: We, yeah, I think it was. They were. It was heading to near Christmas, and they had bigger artists that they were, were needed to promote. And I think we're just one of those bands that it just they yeah. they could have you know worked us at radio more, and they they just didn't because they had other.
0: Well, they had other issues at the time because I remember, two thousand four ish, Warner had a big cull of artists. They dumped a lot yeah. of people because they were so afraid of Napster. Yeah. They were so afraid of piracy. They were so afraid of declining CD sales that there was a time, and Warner was in trouble financially, I think, and uh, Warner America anyway, and they got, I remember there was one week, I think they dumped 200 artists. I remember right? that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and we were told that any artist that sold less than 50,000 in America was would get dumped, and yeah. we were literally on our second record of around six I, th- I think 60,000 or something. So they kept us around. And we didn't, we wanted to get dumped at this point because they weren't really working us. Right. So. Well, you also
2: got to keep in mind, too, is like there was not only was there the band side and the, the artist side being let go of, but all the people that we had met and all the people that were our, quote unquote, champions to like help us, they all got fired. See, this is what a lot of people yeah. don't you understand. Know, and, and then next thing you know, you're standing in a room with a bunch of people you don't know who have no vested interest in you, have not discovered you, don't potentially maybe not even like you. And you're trying to ask them for... You know, <laughs> and maybe support the people yeah,
0: to support. Yeah. And maybe the people that that had were your champions, uh, you know, all of a sudden anything that's associated with them is tainted.
2: Yeah. Because they got fired. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, so there was a lot of that, you know, and that happened to us like four times in the States. You know what I mean? And yeah, we just never, never had that extra, you know, support or push that uh, would take us to the next level. You know, see, at this point, it has nothing to do with talent. And it has
0: nothing to do with it's ability. Business. It's all business, yeah. and it's the weird Cold, relationships. Cold facts. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They go go on in the record industry. Yeah, and... that's that's hard to
3: not let the cynicism
0: seep in. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. the good news is, in Canada, you're doing doing well, and in Europe and, and Germany. Europe. Yeah. yeah. So why Germany?
1: That's the, the age old question that none of us can really answer. But I think you know, just honestly, we we put in the time there. We we played every small club in Germany on the first album and. And we got the right tours opening up for the, the one of the best punk bands there called the Beat Stakes. And uh, it just took off organically there first.
3: Yeah, and it was on the radio. It was on MTV. Yeah, uh, yeah we
1: also had
2: support. Yeah, we had like our label were, were yeah. helping us.
3: When know? we weren't there, yeah, the people that were working at the label were, were busting their ass yeah. to get, our, get us out there.
2: And it was the same in the UK as well. Like that's yeah. where we really, like I remember playing Redding in Leeds for the first time. And, uh, you know, like the Black Keys were on, Before us, you know, and like all these bands that are now doing well, like, you know, and seeing this progression kind of happen uh, with a lot of bands. And for us, we decided that we're going to spend more time in Europe because that's where things were happening. So instead of going to the States and playing in front of, you know, half sold rooms and half small clubs, we decided to go vest all of our time and energy into playing festivals and, and that there's a culture in Europe that that does didn't really exist here at the time. Like the festival culture as well. You
0: know? Well I remember seeing you play rock and ring for the first time. Yeah. And thinking, how how many Okay, this guy used to get me coffee and he's singing in front of how many people <laughs> in ten thousand? Devil in a Midnight Mass, the first single from that second album, cleverly entitled Billy Talent 2. All right, let's get caught up on that record. Second album. You didn't come up with a title for this one either.
2: <laughs> no. Well, we did. Just people didn't really so, like it. Yeah. 2 yeah. sounded so good. Yeah. Billy Talent 2. Well, if it was okay for bands like Chicago. <laughs> yeah. you know, Or Led Zeppelin.
3: Or uh, Led Zeppelin. All right, such fine. Such a daunting process to name a record, though. And uh, I remember Ian suggesting, I think it was you who suggested the 2, right?
1: Well, I just thought it would look really cool graphically for two bars next yeah, to Billy Talent, yeah. too. Yeah. And that record did all right again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it did amazing.
3: Yeah. I think that was a yeah, that biggest was, record. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was a. I think
1: that's one of our fan favorites, Yeah, Billy Talent, too.
3: I remember before it was done thinking, like, am I ever going to get back to Germany? Am I ever going to go to those places again? Was that a once in a lifetime thing? We had no idea. Uh, my wife and I had decided to extend ourselves and buy a house I'm like am I, I going to be able to afford this house it's all crazy hey,
0: you found a banker willing to give you a mortgage oh in man a Canadian- there was so much red tape my <laughs> wife had a good job oh okay <laughs> in a Canadian rock band on just on their their difficult second record yeah <laughs>
2: But I think, too, is when we kind of realized, I mean, uh, we again went to Vancouver. We recorded at The Warehouse with uh, Brian Adams Studio, which was great. Uh, Gavin was producing. And it's also where Ian became more involved in the production as well, because he's always been the main songwriter in the band. But it's when Ian kind of first went, oh, I can kind of, I get this. And I, I and kind of dipped his feet in the production waters. And so it was really cool experience for all of us, because uh, I think the songs were... I mean, we, we had songs like Surrender on the record and songs like Pins and Needles, which were kind of expanding a Navy song, like songs that kind of expanded us from what was just kind of uh, going on at the time, you know, because I think people just were kind of thinking about that we're just, oh, we're this hard kind of crazy, screamy band. But we also took time to nurture and look at other aspects of us. So it was almost like reverting back to the Pez stuff because of Pez, we were all over the place. And now we're kind of going like, OK, yeah, we're good at this, but let's try pushing things a little yeah. bit forward yeah you
1: know? I, I think it was important for us to get out of that screamy thing from the first album and 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 become like a you know a real band that's not just based around screaming because uh that's that whole that was a trend that happened in the early 2000s screamo, and it's you know but I don't know for 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 me Melody is still super important in songs and absolutely and that was like uh, that was one you know one one of uh one of the things going in knowing that like we have to do this
3: yeah and guess what our uh, A&R rep Mary Gormley said to us when she heard the record for the
2: first time. I don't hear a Green Day single, guys. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's that's more or less sums up our relationship with America and record so, and label. It's
1: funny cuz our biggest singles are from that album. Too. Yeah, like Some of the that. biggest ones, yeah. have, so
0: So how did you manage to write such a successful record when you were on the road almost constantly from
1: the first? it's you know it's the wanting to outdo yourself and and you know that your second album is that that's your big shot and it's like the, it's the one that you know if you if you write a crappy second album it's your career's over so I think it was uh that kind of drive that made me want to you know make these songs the best they can possibly be and expand the the uh the sound of the band and um uh, it, was, it was that drive, that ambition. Well, you're also given time because, yeah. you know, the first album comes out 2003.
0: You release the uh, the second album three years later. Yeah. And then the third album comes three years after that. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you've been, you know, you were doing, a, um, you were being forced into a Beatle schedule where every six months you had to have a new album.
1: Right. No, yeah, you, no yeah. but we were always Always working. on the
2: road, yeah. Yeah, we would tour for- A year,
1: year and a half to two years, yeah. yeah
2: just straight touring. touring.
1: But even on the road, like you have, you know, I had guitars around and I always have these little recorders and work on tunes. Even if when we had a van, I was sitting in the back, like, you know, recording stuff on an acoustic guitar and, and that, that's important. You got to keep doing that on the road. Or... What about lyrics? Well, I mean, at that time, you know, we, Ian and I
2: have always done it together, you know, so we would always wait till and still to this day when the music's done, that's when the lyrics kind of would start. You know what I mean? So, I mean, on the first record, a lot of the songs, we had years and years of working on them. And then there were some songs on the first record, like... uh, River Below. I I remember working with that at your apartment and just sitting there and, you know, you had this, like, great... You had the chorus.
1: Yeah, the chorus was already already there. there. Who wrote the the majority of that song in the office at the factory. Yeah, there you go. In the studio in Vancouver. I remember sitting in that room with a little computer and it was...
2: God it yeah. feels like that feels crazy like a million years ago. Uh but yeah, you know, so yeah, you, yeah, it you, just you, kind of
1: works part and parcel with him being so great at what he does, you know. The, the you your first album you have like 10 years to write yeah. and then the second one you you're when you're under the gun either you fail or you 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 just go for it and do it and, and I think uh that was our mentality back then. We were, we were young, we wanted to prove ourselves and we are like let's make a kickass record. Castle,
0: There's a Red Flag from Billy Talent 2, released on June 27th, 2006. We'll continue this talk with all four guys in just a second. This is part two of Billy Talent in their own words. Let's keep going. We now need to talk about the third album, or at least start talking about it. So you have uh, the third album, and I guess you, I would imagine you went into that with a fair amount of confidence based on what you did with the second,
2: except that you couldn't find a title. (laughs) <laughs> I think well the third album was a, that's that, was whole, a whole, that, that was a whole that was a that was an a, interesting a chapter worms, yeah. I that don't know usually. if we've ever had
3: confidence though that, that, like we have confidence in our abilities and all and in, in all that stuff but there's as a musician I think there's always a underlining insecurity yeah uh, and all that kind of I don't think you ever feel secure.
1: Yeah, I think I think you put your best foot forward and hope for the best, but and know that you've done your best. But there's never a confidence like it's going to work, like people yeah. are going to actually yeah. like it. it. It's really it's a really insecure thing being in a band and being a songwriter. It really is. Yeah.
0: Let's look at 2006. So again, the music industry is evolving very rapidly. Yeah, we're seeing sales really start to go down. Music industry is panicking because revenues are falling. People are still talking about piracy, and we haven't got to the era of streaming yet. Mm-hmm. We still haven't even two thousand six. We don't even have an iPod yet, no, or
2: or the iPhone yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, uh, what was it like then?
2: Well, I, I guess for us, we were still <laughs> trying to, you know, the second record. We we, we again, we had uh, a lot of success, which we were very fortunate for and and appreciative of. And then our manager at the time, um, we they we got asked. Uh, there was a fellow. So we ended, up, we ended up signing with Warner now, U.S., and uh, there was a guy named Craig Aronson who was a lovely guy who unfortunately has passed away since. Uh, he was an a representative and he was like, who's who's your top two producers that you'd want to work with? And we're like, Butch Vig and Brendan O'Brien. And so we reached out to Butch, and he was interested because he was just uh, finished recording with our friends uh, against me. They did a great record called New Wave. And so they sang our praises to him and he heard some of our songs and he wanted to work with us but he was working with this little band called Green Day at the time uh, <laughs> so he couldn't do us and then we sent it to Brendan and Brendan heard it and loved it and next thing you know Brendan O'Brien wants to record our, our next record in Atlanta in Atla- well, L-A-N- L-A-N- Atlanta well LA and Atlanta yeah, yeah yeah so that's when we had a big holy sh- moment where like, you know, Brandon O'Brien's flying in to Toronto, coming to our shitty little rehearsal space at the top of the road here and is going to like work with us and wants to produce our record. That was scary. Yeah. Yeah. He was a <laughs> yeah. nice guy. So he flies up. Nice dude. hears some songs. And then, uh, yeah, I can't remember how quick of a turnaround it was till the
1: time we were there. Pretty quick in yeah, the pretty, studio with him. Yeah. In, uh, yeah. 40, 40 days uh, in Atlanta, including mixing. Yeah. And then, well, we did, we did a bunch in Toronto as well, but, uh, yeah, that, that was like, that was an interesting thing because the label at this point now wanted, you know, an A-level producer and I, I was, you know, confident of doing this myself at this point, but when they're throwing around names like Butchvig and, and Brent O'Brien, I was like, well, we got to work with one of these guys. Yeah, because Ian was going to produce it up until that
3: moment. Yeah.
1: Because the second one had done really well and, and, um, so we we all, uh, you know, we're like, oh my god, it's Brendan O'Brien. He's done all our favorite Rage Against the Machine records and Pearl Jam, Pearl I'm Jam records, huge fan and, of. and so we uh, yeah we went down and worked with him, and it was a, it was a really different thing for us. He, he, that be, I mean, those songs at the time, uh, on the record, some of them were really suited towards his style, like, like "Rusted from the Rain" and "Devil on My Shoulder," but uh, some of them weren't, and it uh, ended up being a really weird record. I, I don't know if our fans appreciated it to the extent that we thought they would but uh, uh, some of the songs did really well for us I mean it was a first charting number one was rusted from the rain that we've ever had so um, yeah, yeah looking back it's still a weird it was a weird time it's been a
3: polarizing record for our fans too like uh, it's or a grower in a way I guess when, when when I hear people talk about it they're like I didn't like it at first but now it's one of my favorites and I think a lot of people have, have had that, that experience with that record
0: maybe maybe that's the mark of a true great record where people can go back and listen to it many years
2: later and hear new things no I think or it's a great record oh yeah. totally yeah. yeah you know it was just a weird again it was a weird time and and the industry was changing and we were changing as people and as as the band and you know um, and not to reference Pearl Jam but you know a band like Pearl Jam they've had that. you know I always look to them as a source of inspiration because they've had tremendous success and then they've had some records where they just kind of fell off a bit and then, you know, and then eight years later, they're back with this big splash and great songs and sold out tours. And, you know, and so I think that re- that record means a lot to us, Billy Talent 3. But it was also like a point where like, OK, we we learned some stuff yeah. from the, that point. There was also time, you know. some dark
3: times with that record for the band, too. Mm-hmm. Disappointing times because uh, we had finished this record and we really thought it was great. It sounded different than our other records, but we were confident in its in the way it was going to be delivered like it's, a, it was kind of our rock record where the first two were more of a punk record and then
1: then it, it got rejected yeah three
3: months before it was going to come out it got leaked and then two months before it was supposed to come out Warner US decided that they didn't want to release it and we had it was scheduled all around the world to be released yeah. except now we didn't have a, a label in the states to release <laughs> we, a record we had already <laughs> left Atlantic
1: Records to go with Warner Brothers yeah and, yeah, and Tom, Tom, Wally Tom Wally just said pulled the plug no. on us he pulled the plug. So we ended up going to now Roadrunner Records because um, Ron Berman was a fan for a long time and they put out the record and it was like a last minute thing. So it they was, didn't have a lot of time to set it up. Or it anything was also months now. after the release date, too. It was.
3: Yeah, yeah. 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 Which that screwed everything up for us because back then, like you said, it, it was still the it was pre iPhone, uh, no streaming sites. So when it got leaked, it was done. It was just out there and all the record labels were just super disappointed and they all just kind of pulled yeah. back on the whole release and kind of sabotaged the record in a way. So there was a whole bunch of things that went against it. Yeah. yeah,
1: But I think it did well in Canada still. Yeah. It, it still did good in lovely. Canada and yeah. in Germany. And Germany Wasn't yeah. this
0: the tour where you guys sold out Maple Leaf Gardens or the ACC?
1: Yeah. Uh, was, was,
0: yeah. The first one was in 2006. On Billy Talent 2. I was on Billy Talent 2. That was uh,
3: February yeah. 2006.
1: I think, we, I think yeah. we sold out the tour on this tour, on 3, though. We sold out ACC on that.
3: Was I mean, it on, as on well. I but I know it, the yeah. first time we played ACC was 2002, because remember we had all the uh, album artwork being projected. Or, sorry, uh, the album 2. Oh, okay. Remember all the album artwork yeah. was being projected. The show that
0: I saw was with Rise Against. I remember standing in the, at the back of the ACC and, and watching you guys play and going, Yep, the boy's done good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I got the devil on my shoulder. I got the devil on my shoulder. I got the devil on my shoulder.
0: So, how did all this work out? Well, we'll have to wait for part three to find out. And we will finish it off next time with discussions about the third, fourth, and fifth albums. And we'll talk about Aaron's battle with MS, something that has been a group effort from day one. Meanwhile, let's you and me talk about whatever is on your mind. I'm always available via email. Just hit me up at alan at allencross.ca and I promise to write back. Plus, there's my website, which is a journal of It's updated 365 days a year and comes with a very nifty daily newsletter that summarizes everything you need to know about what's going on in music that day, and then some. If Facebook is your thing, I've got a couple of pages and you could also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. Like I said, we should talk. Join me for part three of Billy Talent in Their Own Words, next time with The Ongoing History of New Music. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.
3: You've been listening to The Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.